Luke chapter 24, please. This morning. As if the funeral was not bad enough, they now faced a seven-mile trudge back home on weary feet. Their hearts could not be any lower and their minds could not be any more confused than they were. In an attempt to process that weekend's events, they talked about what they had seen and what it had meant. They couldn't agree how to interpret what had happened and didn't even notice the soft footfalls behind them until he was right beside them. Little did they know that as deep as their heart's sorrow and confusion was that morning, their day would end with hearts that were burning, like tanks full of jet fuel igniting, combusting, and exploding in skyward heights of bursting joy. What would change the dark cloud of that wintry deep depression into the warm sunshine of a clear blue summer afternoon feeling of exhilaration and joy? The answer is they had encountered the living Christ and His presence in the very words of God. Brothers and sisters, we far too often feebly wander and stumble or or quit altogether in our stale and dry personal daily scripture intake. Because we have not encountered the living presence of Christ in the very words of God, just like these two. But when we do, like these two, we are never the same. The title of this morning's message is Burning Hearts. And in order for us to have hearts that burn with passion for Christ continually, we must meet Jesus in His Word, as these two did. There are three things in this passage that I want you to be on the lookout for about encountering Christ and His Word. And the first is this. To encounter our risen Messiah, our eyes must be opened. Secondly, to encounter our risen Messiah, our understanding must be full. And thirdly, to encounter our risen Messiah, our focus must be Him. The last time we spoke, we were in the uh, road to the Lord Jesus' uh, uh, crucifixion, and we saw his, his, His perfect love, how He loved perfectly till the end at the cross. We saw that He loved perfectly as He warned others. He warned others about the judgment that was to come. We saw that He loved perfectly as He on the cross forgave forgave completely. Forgave completely. He warns others. He saves sinners. In fact, the sayings of mockery toward the Lord Jesus, He saved others, Himself He cannot save, were so true. If He was going to save others, He could not save Himself. And then we saw, as He gives up His Spirit, and He says, it is finished, that Jesus loves perfectly as He unlocks what has been locked to a fallen sinful man, He unlocks heaven. And relationship with His Father. Jesus loves perfectly till the end at the cross. At the end of Luke chapter 23, it's very clear that Jesus is indeed dead. He has not fainted. 
He is not gone into a state of unconsciousness. Jesus is dead. In Luke chapter 23, verse 52, Jesus is described as a body. In Luke chapter 23, verses 53 through 56, His body is prepared for burial. He is a corpse. He is dead. And in fact, in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, He is expected to still be dead. As the women come and finish what they had started there before they had to stop, before the Sabbath day. And we looked in verses 1 through 12 on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and we saw some uh, basic truths about the Lord Jesus and His resurrection here. Uh, that first of all, the resurrection is hard to believe. It was hard to believe for these ladies. They were going there not expecting to see a risen Christ. They were going there with the expectation that they would see the corpse that they had already begun to prepare. They were not expecting to see a risen Christ. Resurrection was hard to believe for the disciples, the closest followers of Jesus, even Peter. But not only is the resurrection hard to believe, but the resurrection this morning is an unintended surprise. Jesus had very clearly said He would rise again. It didn't need to be a surprise. He even told them how long it would be after he was dead. In three days. And then the truth is, as Peter and these women encounter the risen Christ, and the, and the proof that Jesus had been resurrected, it was life transforming. It changed everything. And think about the switch that was flipped on in Peter's life. The one who denied the Lord Jesus and had gone in such a state of low despair. And now, Jesus, the one who said He would pray for him, the one who said uh, Peter would be the one who would go and restore his brethren, Jesus is alive. And that leads us to a story in verses 13 through 35 that is not recorded in any of the other Gospels, but is unique to Luke. It has a very interesting pattern here. For those who uh, have studied a passage like this and have noticed the themes, they have discovered what is called a chiasm. And a chiasm is kind of, uh, in, in simple terms, the most simplistic I can, I can explain this morning, a chiasm is a story starting in one way and, and, and reaching a crisis and then kind of returning to where it began but in an opposite effect. Here's what I mean by this. Uh, in the first few verses here, we have the journey from Jerusalem in verses 13 through 14 of these two. Then they're described as having closed eyes in verses 15 through 17. Then there is an explanation given to them about the events that they had seen, but they don't, still don't seem to have... Uh, an understanding. They have their own explanation as to what happened. Then Jesus speaks to them in verse 25 and 26. And here seems to be the climax. Jesus suffering in glory. Verse 25 and 26. Then, there is an explanation with understanding. 
their eyes are open in verses 28 through 32. And they return to Jerusalem. It comes full circle. With a climax being verses 25 and 26 of the suffering and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking in verse 13, it says, Two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which is from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs, or, or sixty stadia, which today would have been the Roman equivalent of seven miles. If you're looking on your map for where, uh, your Bible map for where Emmaus is, seven miles from Jerusalem, you won't find it. Nobody knows exactly where Emmaus was. We just know that it was a distance based on what Luke says in verse 13 of about seven miles. But that's where their home apparently was. They had been to Jerusalem for the events of that week. They had seen the Lord Jesus cry, it is finished. They had seen his body laid in the tomb. He was dead for all purposes to them. And they were confused. Who were these two? Well, if you looked at paintings of this scene, you would see two men walking together. But the probability is this was a disciple and his wife. Going back home. Man and a woman, husband and wife, headed back home, trying to figure out what had happened. Their minds were clouded. And the first thing as we look at uh, this passage, it says in verse 14, they talked together of all these things which had happened. That word talk there is kind of a nice way to translate it. They were disputing is the word. They could not figure it out. They were arguing amongst themselves what had happened. One had this perspective, another had this perspective. One said, but didn't he say this? And another perhaps said, but he also said this. They couldn't figure it out. And verse 15 says, while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Another traveler draws alongside and verse 16 says, their eyes were holden that they should not know him. In English today, their eyes were restrained. They could not see who it was with them. Sure, they saw physically who it was. They did not have spiritual eyes to recognize who it was that was walking with them. Their eyes were blinded. Which shows us something this morning. Folks, if we are going to encounter the risen, living Christ in the Scriptures, our eyes must be opened. Our eyes must be opened. This morning, these two men, or the, the, this couple here, knew the facts of Scripture. They apparently had been eyewitnesses to the event. So Jesus' life and ministry and death were, were, were very real historic events in their life. They could probably remember the things that He said. In fact, verses 18 through 20, when Jesus says, why are you talking to one another? And I'm sad. There, that word for sad, by the way, is why do you have gloomy eyes? They were despondent. The one identified as Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass here in these days? Jesus says, What things? And here they recounted what they did understand. Verse 19. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. I understood that much. Jesus was the prophet. 
He he had been specially anointed and had done amazing acts, mighty deeds. And he was an amazing teacher and word before God and all the people. But then there's this hang-up that they can't get over, and it's verse 20. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. Yeah, they knew the facts of Scripture, but they didn't have it all together, did they? The problem was, not that they didn't know what the text had said and what had happened. The problem was their hearts. Look at verse 25 later on. Jesus says unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. They knew it. The problem was their faith. They knew it all, but they did not believe it all. They needed their eyes open. They needed the Spirit of God to open their eyes to encounter the living Christ. They needed verse 28 to happen. As they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry them. He broke the bread. And verse 31 says, And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. Monthly, uh, with Alan Beck, uh, we have, he puts on a, a pastor's breakfast from various pastors in the area. And one of the pastors brings his, uh, his blind father-in-law to the breakfast. And this man needs someone to put the food on his plate. Uh, his son-in-law serves him. And while he's eating, he's not finding everything on his plate. He has everything on his plate in that breakfast. Everything he needs. But my pastor friend will say, Dad, there's some of this over here. whatever, Or that fell off the side of your plate. He can't find it. And he doesn't know what it is. He knows it's all there. But he doesn't know where it is. Without someone who can see. And folks, without the Holy Spirit bringing the light of the glory of Jesus to our understanding through the Word of God, through the text, the Scriptures, our eyes are shut. We can know all the facts. We can list off the details of truth. But there is no encountering Jesus without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You see, these folks here that are, that are mentioned are like so many Christians reading their Bibles. They get it, but they don't get it. You see, what they needed was Jesus to interpret the Scriptures for them. They needed to hear the clear, clear Word of God. They needed to know the intent of the Word of God. To clear up the confusion of their souls. Their minds were locked. And then they saw that the Scriptures were locked in their minds. Sure, they could tell you what the Scriptures said. They could tell you all the stories. But they saw them as piecemeal. They didn't have the key to unlock it. They didn't know how to interpret it. And the reason why is they thought the key was dead. Verse 21 says, But we trusted that it had been He which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. 
In other words, he's still dead three days later. We thought he was going to be the hope of Israel. Restore us, uh, deliver us from our oppressors, the Romans. Set up his kingdom. And here it is, three days later, and he is still dead. They thought the key had been disposed of. But folks, Jesus is alive. And Jesus is the living key that unlocks the fulfillment of Scripture. They, like everybody else in Israel, have been reading the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. Do you ever look through the wrong end of the telescope? Or the binoculars? Makes everything look really tiny, right? They had been seeing it as the long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. But it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. In particular, the suffering that would be taken on by Israel's representative, the Messiah, Jesus. And so Luke here uh, says that Jesus, in verse 26, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into His glory, and beginning at Moses, and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. So Jesus here interprets to them all the things about Himself throughout the Bible. Now what that doesn't mean... It doesn't mean that Jesus collected a few or a few dozen isolated verse texts, uh, verses chosen at random. In other words, what this is is telling us, that he means that the whole story from Genesis to the last book of the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles, points toward a fulfillment that could only be found when God's anointed took upon himself the sin of the world and died under its weight and rose again creates a new people. To encounter Christ, our eyes must be open. But the second truth that needs to be true for us to encounter the living Messiah is that our understanding must be full. And these are closely related to one another. But these people needed Jesus to interpret, to explain what it meant, to put the pieces together. They needed to understand the full message of the Scriptures. That the Scriptures are centered in Christ. When I was a kid and I got one of those little round compasses, like a ball, that's in liquid. Uh, you, you could shake, you could shake those. You know, and there's a little bubble in there in the liquid. You could shake those and, and kind of spin it around, and, and you could make that needle kind of kind of vibrate and go wherever it wants. And, and then you set it down, and what happens to that needle? It starts turning back to true north. The scriptures. True north is the Lord Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Him. And everything in the New Testament proceeds from Him. You see, when we study the Word of God, and we hear the Word of God, in order for us to meditate on the Scriptures, as is the point of Scripture, it's not just for data and information, is for the point of meditation on it. In order for us to properly meditate and get to the point of meditation, we must understand that the whole Bible, as Nathan so wonderfully showed us last week, is a unified message of the gospel of God's grace culminating in Christ Jesus. And to apply this good news to our everyday lives in a heart-transforming way. You see, the Bible is nothing without application. Our hope is that as we see the message of salvation by grace unfolding throughout Scripture, 
Or respond to God with greater love and faithfulness and power. This is not a new way of studying the Bible or reading your Bible, folks. This is how it is always meant to be. Verse 27. This approach honors our Lord's own instruction to see the gospel in Scripture. So His love empowers that transmission of our lives from the insides out. You see, Christ's grace doesn't wait until the last chapter of Luke here to make its first appearance. No. Rather, Christ's grace is the dawning light that begins in Genesis 3.15 and increases in intensity throughout Scripture. Jesus says repeatedly in John chapter 5 that all the Scriptures bear witness of Him. But how do the Scriptures do this? Jesus can't mean that all the Scriptures make direct mention of Him. Because there's very few references in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that make explicit reference to Jesus. And here's where the third part is so necessary. To encounter our risen Messiah, our focus must be Him. You see, they're on their way back from the funeral to home in Emmaus. It seems like Jesus is going to continue going past Emmaus, but they say, come with us and stay with us, in verse 29. So in verse 30, Jesus joins them for supper. It says that it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. He takes the role of the host. And verse 31 says, And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, listen to this, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? Our hearts burned when? When he talked with us on the way, and while he opened up the scriptures. It's one of those verses you may want to underline. And the change happens in verse 33. What happens? It says, They rose up the same hour. They had just gotten in, just had a meal with Jesus, just had a just a, 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 a had been on a horrible trip of sadness to go home and just sit down and process it all. They eat with Jesus. Their eyes are open. Their hearts are burning for passion for Jesus as He is laid open who He is from the Old Testament. And verse 33 says, They rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem because they had to tell other people. Their eyes were open. Their hearts burned. They encountered Jesus when... When? When He showed that He was the blazing star of Scripture. They encountered the risen Christ when He was shown to be the North Star of Scripture that everything revolved around. He had to be their focus in the Word for their encounter to be real. And it is true for us, brothers and sisters. In order for us to encounter the living Christ and have a real devotional life in His Word, we must see Jesus in the Scriptures. Brian Chappell uh, has written extensively on this and he says this, We will understand what Jesus meant about all the Scripture bearing witness to Him as we remember the big picture of the Bible. An old cliche says biblical history is His story. 
But how is this story of Jesus unfolding across the past and future millennia the Bible describes? Well, the answer is, it begins with a good creation, corrupted by Adam's fall, redeemed by Christ's provision, perfected by, in the end, as he looked forward to the future, the consummation of all things in Christ as he restores his creation. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration helps us map the events of Scripture. Chapel writes, it's important to remember that the redemption part of biblical history, the redemption phase, begins unfolding long before the crucifixion narrative in the Gospels. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, God says to the one who tempted them, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's what biblical scholars call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. The first mention of the gospel. It's God's first promise that He will redeem His world and people who have been broken by Adam's sin, separated from God in fellowship, by the divine provision of one who would come through the human source, through a virgin, the incarnate Son of God, to defeat Satan while he suffers an awful attack from Satan. And that sets the stage for everything that falls in Scripture. And the rest of human history plays out on that stage. So every piece of Scripture that follows is relating to that context. Genesis 3.15 Our goal is not to try to make Jesus magically appear in every single passage. But our goal is to show where every passage properly stands on that stage. Jesus is the chief and culminating figure on this stage. The stage is set for Him. Everything that happens on that stage here relates to Him. And we don't understand anything on that stage until we have identified where this passage is in relation to Jesus. You see... The Bible was written to people who are in a fallen condition. It was written to people who need grace. And so in every passage there is a fallen condition focus. A focus on why we need grace. How we identify with those people to whom it was written here. And it is our task, Chapel says, in order to encounter the risen Messiah in the Scriptures... The Word in the Word. It is our joy to identify how God's Word does one of four things. That could be more than than one of four things. Could be all four. Could be two. Could be three. Could be only one. Could overlap in a couple. But it is our purpose to identify how God's Word does four things. Or one of four things when we look at a passage in order to meditate on Jesus. Here's what I mean by this. First of all, when you are studying and reading your Bible, you need to understand that every passage will do one of four things, or overlap in these four things. The one is this. It will predict the Lord Jesus. Some passages like the prophecies and some of the messianic psalms are, are clearly predict who Jesus is and what he will do. 
Isaiah writes of the Messiah who will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there's going to be no end. Isaiah 9, 6, 7. That's a clear prediction of Jesus' work and person. There are many other predictions, like Isaiah 53 and others, that are just more obvious. So a passage can predict the Lord Jesus Christ. But not every passage is going to do that, is it? Because other passages prepare God's people. They prepare God's people to understand the grace that God has to provide to redeem His people. For example, think of the story of God's servant David and King Saul's lame grandson, Mephibosheth, the descendant who's going to be David's blood rival for Israel's throne. That story shares with us something about God's ways of forgiving His enemies and showing mercy toward the helpless. And where do we see that most fully revealed? Romans 5.8 Prepare God's people to understand the grace that God must provide to redeem His people. So we're not, te- we're not saying that Jesus magically appears in the text, but we get foreshadowings of Jesus and who He is. To prepare us to understand the need of God's grace, but also to understand His provision of grace. Remember what Paul writes in Galatians 3.24? The law is our schoolmaster, or it's our guardian. It helps to lead us to Christ. How does it help us lead us to Christ? Well, the law doesn't make us any better. No. What the law does is it shows the high and holy standards of God's law that prepares to seek God's mercy and grace then depend on our quality of our own performance. See, it drives us to depend on the quality of of Christ's perfect performance on our behalf. The law does. The sacrificial system. It prepares us. I mean, you get stuck in Leviticus, right? When you're trying to read through the Bible, you get stuck in Leviticus. Alright, Leviticus 4, okay, we're going on to Deuteronomy. Right? Come on, be honest. The sacrificial system, though, When you look at the Bible through the Jesus lens, the sacrificial system prepares us to understand that without the shedding of blood, there is is no atonement for our failure to keep the law. That's why the writer of Hebrews writes his book. And because Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, we can understand that our standing before God depends upon our faith and the provision of another in our behalf. So Scripture can prepare us to understand and receive the grace of Christ on our behalf. So not only could a passage predict, but there are passages that prepare us to receive the grace. But, not only that, aspects of the Gospel are reflected throughout Scripture. And there's overlap in some of these, I understand. We might see parallels. You see... Sometimes a text doesn't obviously predict, it doesn't obviously prepare for Christ's person or work, but the truth in the text can be discerned by asking two questions. What does this text reveal about the nature of God, the God who provides redemption, who He is? 
What does this text reflect about the nature of humanity that requires redemption? And it's in these lenses that the scripture shows us that God is holy and we are not. Or that God is sovereign and we are needy and vulnerable. Or that God is merciful and we require His mercy. Those glasses make us aware of our need for God's grace to compensate for our sin and ability. So in passages like the Psalms where the psalmist is bemoaning the enemies and those who are against him and at the end he talks about his refuge in God. How much more do we have a refuge in Christ? A refuge that in Romans 8 says nothing can separate us from. You see, Christ may not be specifically, explicitly mentioned in the passage, but God's nature revealed in it, and our nature points to the need for one who could make atonement with God, at one with God. We can see the gracious nature of God, the one who provides redemption as He gives strength to the weak. Rest to the weary, deliverance to the disobedient, faithfulness to the unfaithful, food to the hungry, salvation to sinners. We learn something about the human nature that requires redemption. Heroes in the scripture fail. David kills the giant, and later on, he's sinning with Bathsheba. Patriarchs lie. Kings fall. Prophets cower. Disciples doubt. God's covenant people become idolaters. And when we go through the traditional... um, way that sometimes Sunday school classes were set up as a kid where those people are set up as heroes like be honest because so and so was honest be a good person because so and so in the Bible was a good person you have just made that text unchristian because that's moralism the world can do that A Mormon can teach that. We need Jesus and His grace. Every text doesn't show a character in the Bible as a hero to emulate what is men and women who are flawed, who themselves needed the grace of God. Finally, you can see Jesus in the passage when you understand the passages may show the result of Christ's work in our behalf. How are we justified and sanctified? Result of Christ's work in our behalf. Spirit indwelling. How are our prayers heard? Because a result of His priestly intercession for us. How are our wills transformed? Because we've been united with Him. How can we worship? Because God has graciously provided for our salvation. On Wednesday nights, we'll go into a little bit more detail uh, through a study of uh, seeing Jesus and the Scriptures. If you want to go in uh, further study of this. This morning, I want you to understand that the Bible was not written just for you to read. The Bible was not written just for you to memorize. The Bible was written for you to meditate on. To stir around, to think on, to have it change your life. The Bible was written for you to apply the truth and grace of the Lord Jesus. 
Luke here has told this story in such a way that perhaps we can identify with these two folks. Because we are in the same fallen condition without the Lord Jesus. We live out many times how these disciples may have felt. Sure, we know Jesus has risen in our minds as we look back. But we don't have a fresh encounter with the Lord Jesus. But here in this passage, we're invited to listen to the exposition of the Bible for the result of having hearts that burn. As fresh truth comes out of ancient pages and sets our hearts on fire for Him. And Luke here brings out what the church frequently forgets through history. That the careful study and Bible intake through our gathering together and our studying the Word in our personal time is meant to bring together head and heart. It's meant to to bring together understanding and fervent application. When we grasp this, like Cleopas and his wife, we may say together with them, did not our heart burn with us as we studied and listened to his word and saw him? John Broaddus, who was one of the great preachers of the 19th century, said this, and it's quoted in your bulletin. In reading the Old Testament, you have learned that there is balm in Gilead, that there is a great physician there. He has checked your fearful mortal malady, and you shall live. You have looked to the brazen serpent, you are healed. You have sprinkled your doorpost with the blood of God's atoning lamb, and the angel of destruction will pass you by. You have fled to the city of refuge, and the destroyer cannot come near you. You have laid your sins by faith on your substitute, and he has borne them away into the wilderness. You have bathed in the fountain that was opened in the house of David for sin and for uncleanness, and the defilement of guilt has been washed away. You have brought to Jesus the writing that bound you as a servant of sin, and he has annulled it by nailing it to his cross. You see, what Luke is describing for us in this passage is the new exodus that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. That slave master that keeps the human race in bondage, that slave master of sin and death. That slave master that was exhibited in this Roman tool of authority, crucifixion. That victory over death that Jesus wrought robs that tyrant of its power. Our rebellion against God and that so cons- that conspiring with death has been defeated. And Jesus leads two people, so to speak, out of slavery. To form them into a new people. A people with new eyes. And Jesus invites them to accompany Him on the journey to that promised land. You see, the road to Emmaus... As Luke closes out his book here, this is just the beginning. And encountering the living Christ in the Scripture, seeing Jesus in the Word of God, 
is how God welcomes us to his new world. God's grace to us finds its ultimate expression in Christ's love for us. And we love him because he first loved us. We delight to love what he loves and whom he loves. And our delight and God's delight is not only the power for our Christian life, but it's the motivation. And that light and that love is only found as we encounter Jesus in the Word of God. Let's pray.